0: Welcome to the podcast. My name's Greg.
1: My name's Alicia.
0: And this is another episode of Blood, Fear, and Beer. How are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Greg?
0: I'm doing great. We just donated to a fine charity. Hopefully, we didn't get swindled, but (laughs) with a high school student trying to make our way through college, having to go door to door through a pandemic selling newspapers. Pretty fucked up. It's
1: pretty fucked up. Yeah.
0: Why can't we just
1: make school affordable? Yeah. What kind of beer are you drinking tonight?
0: I have before me the twenty fourth anniversary edition from Stone Brewery, the Digery Doom double IPA. It's
1: a badass name. They've been around for twenty four years.
0: Twenty four fucking years. Can you believe that?
1: No, that's crazy. You
0: can't either. I wasn't even all enough to drink.
1: But you did anyway, at ten years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> So, what can you tell me about this 24th anniversary Didgeridoo Doom double IPA?
0: Well, it is supposed to be brewed with Australian hops, hence the didgeridoo part. And then also, there's some kind of mention of Doom metal. So, it's a combination of the two. And apparently, the Didgeridoo or the Australian hops were not available back in the day, but now they're in all craft beers. But this is a celebration of the Australian hops as it were
1: nice well i can't wait to hear how it is seems like a special one
0: mm-hmm. good <laughs> it's real good
1: <laughs> is that an understatement because you look like you just went somewhere for a second i was in <laughs>
0: australia no jet. that's where i went it <laughs> yeah? was really good yeah outback? i was feeling it the outback i had like that kind of a in a good way that deserty taste in my mouth yeah mm, That was good you want to try it I'd love i don't to. think you'll like it probably not but then again
1: oh it smells hoppy it's yeah? hoppy
0: yeah I got a little kangaroo bounce in my step.
1: It's definitely too bitter for me. I couldn't drink it. But when I first taste it, that is a very flavorful quality beer.
0: All their beers are just pack a punch.
1: Yeah. The more time that passes after I tried it, the more I taste the bitterness. It's just, I, not quite Not for feeling me, it? Not feeling it. But I can tell that's a good beer.
0: What's that <laughs> glass of mud that you're drinking?
1: I got myself from the Epic Brewing Company an Imperial... Pumpkin porter. Nice. How bomb does that sound?
0: Hey porter. Hey porter.
1: God damn, that's awesome.
0: It smells so good.
1: It's so good. I try? Yep. 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 The longer it sits, the better it tastes.
0: hmm You know what you really good with that? What? Those crappy store bought pumpkin donuts.
1: Oh my god, yes. Those the glazed are so ones, good, yes. Like the
0: old fashioned ones? Oh. That'd, that'd be good god. with that.
1: So we are covering an absolute gem of a movie directed by David Fincher from nineteen ninety five says seven Sevenen. It's a seven in. It's a seven, in. <laughs> it's a seven in. That's how you say it right? Because of say the it. seven in the title? Yeah. It's a seven. That has to be why they put that there. It's a seven why else would in. you put it there? Yeah. Certainly not to look cool. No.
0: Fuck it stupid.
1: It's so stupid. <laughs> it is the only complaint I have about this movie. Yeah. Is the stupid it's... title.
0: Which I don't know if they actually advertised it that way initially.
1: You think it maybe it's just like a DVD release thing or like an on video release thing?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm recollecting maybe erroneously. I don't remember that initially.
1: Okay. But the maybe
0: maybe it was. Maybe it's just wishful thinking. Maybe. But that still to this day bugs the shit out of it me. It really bothers me to see. It. Yeah, I don't like and... that. I hate that.
1: <laughs> it makes no sense.
0: The very nineties thing to do.
1: Yes, I'd wager to say it's a perfect movie.
0: It's damn near. It's a great fucking movie. Yeah. It really is one of those things that when you go back and see something from early 90s or mid-90s rather, you're not quite sure what you're getting into, especially when it comes to a horror-ish genre movie. From the get-go, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be good.
1: For sure. It hasn't been that long since I've seen this movie. Like, you and I definitely watched it at least once when we lived in the Fullerton apartment. But I always have that kind of hesitation, like, oh man, is it going to be as good as I remember it? I've seen a lot of stuff since then, and it is just as good, if not better, than I remember every time I watch it.
0: Yeah. So one of the things in this movie that they they use as a lead for trying to figure out who the killer is is that Detective Somerset uses his inside source with the FBI to look at library records of individuals and the books that they've been reading because it's supposed to be a grayish area that the government is actually keeping tabs on what citizens are checking out the libraries not officially but they do and somerset even says to mills "Yeah, it's a gray area you know like we can't use this in a court of law we can't say well we saw him on this list and that's how we got him but we can use it to try to help ourselves and then maybe through some other means get some genuine evidence that right. that person is you know but just so you're not shooting in the fucking dark you right. know to go somewhere and as such he gets this guy to give him a list of whoever's checked out all these books on the seven deadly sins and all these greek myths and just stuff like that stuff that would be related to the type of literature and things this killer is quoting yeah
1: there's like the dante's inferno stuff things like that yeah lost all that Mm -hmm. yeah
0: and then canterbury tales so i was as he was going through this whole list i realized that especially in my middle school and high school days, I would have been flagged on that list for sure (laughs) as a probable suspect (laughs) of these murders. And I thought it would be fun to go through maybe some of the books that we read in high school or in middle school that would have put us on this uh, short list for Somerset and Mills.
1: Okay, I love that. Can we expand it into college, though? Of course. Okay, yeah, because most of my shit would have been in college for sure. What do you got? I'm curious to hear.
0: Well, I was all into the Dante's series. I love Inferno. I read that one like three times. I thought that one was really awesome.
1: I've never read that. Still, I, I was
0: laughing my ass off again today when we were talking about this while we were watching. Because <laughs> <laughs> you it asked was... me if it would hold up, and it was written in the 14th century. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll still a hold up after 700 years. It's a
1: legitimate question. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know before I adjust the time. was a legitimate plus. that was fucking
0: great. <laughs> Do you think that was still hold up? I want to know. <laughs> I think that's a valid
1: question. <laughs> Some things lose their luster even after 700 yes. years.
0: <laughs> so I read all the, I read the Purgatorio and Paradiso. Paradiso is super boring to me, though. That's, of course, hell's going to be a lot more interesting than heaven. Okay. Purgatorio is pretty cool, though. That one's all fucked up. And then one thing I didn't realize, because I don't know if I necessarily got all the versions that had illustrations in them Mm -hmm. but I I finally decided to look it up this time because there's a few images in particular that show up in this movie when somebody's searching like the occult and the devil there's almost a guaranteed like three or four images that you will see in a movie if they're researching this movie has it Every movie I'm trying to think I think
1: I recognise some images in this that were definitely in the credits of the Devil's Candy. Devil's sure.
0: Candy yeah. and
1: Last Exorcism.
0: Last Exorcism yeah. definitely had it. And there's a few others that we've watched that I know are in there. Spider Woman? Yeah, she's Spider Woman, where she's like flailed backwards and her tits are up. Yeah. Tits up.
1: Tits up to the Lord.
0: Yeah. So that is actually from Paradiso or I'm sorry, Purgatorio. Okay. And so are another. Like, have you ever seen Oh Jacob's
1: Ladder too? Yeah, Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. And then
0: there's um there's an image of like the giant like slunched over and he's got like a person on his arm. I forget what that dude's name is right now. I didn't write it down. But that also is from either Inferno or Purgatorio. And then a bunch of the really cool images. I was actually going through. There's uh, one particular illustrator whose name, of course, I didn't write down. But he's the one who did all those initially. And I'm like. When we get our house, we're going to have a bunch of those up. I want those illustrations. They're really awesome. I'm so down. So those were all very cool. I also did Paradise Lost. That one was okay. I wasn't as keen on that one. I never read Canterbury Tales, though.
1: I actually read that one for 12th grade English, and I don't remember a lot from it, but I remember loving it. It's great. Yeah. uh, Jeffrey Chaucer. He's a a funny, snarky dude. Is that more of a modern thing? Canterbury Tales? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. It's also, like, I didn't hundreds so. I of thought years was... old. Of... No. Yeah. He was a funny dude, I should have said. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the <laughs> <It's a funny laughs>
0: wording that Aaron like, what? I, mean,
1: <laughs> I guess it still holds up to this day. Yeah. <laughs> still, just so you all know.
0: <laughs> there's another one that I actually didn't know that C.S. Lewis, uh-huh. I didn't know anything about Narnia, but there's a book that he wrote, I think it was prior to Narnia, that was called The Screw Tape Letters. Oh, Yeah. I thought that was cool as hell back in the day. The whole idea is this premise that there's devils among us and that there's senior devils and kind of different levels of devils. And again, thank you, Dante's Inferno. R- literally everything that there is to be known about hell and the idea of the way that hell works yeah. is originates from those books. And I think that's what's so fascinating. Even today, like even in our folklore, in our movies, in our stories, that's still the propagating line of thought. But Screwtape Letters is about the senior devil and a junior devil if you will and they're in different parts of the country and the junior and they're having to infiltrate families and businesses and things like that. And it's this letter correspondence back and forth where this novice is trying to both inform the senior devil of his progress as well as get advice from him on how to proceed with certain circumstances. And it's just a really clever idea, and it's written in a very, I want to say, you know, 18th century kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's not uppity or anything. It's really more of a matter-of-fact type of thing, and it's not egregious, but it's this whole idea that there's this, like, mentoring aspect going on, that they're having a hard time trying to get in to infiltrate, like, a good family or whatever. And then I, you know, came to find out that C.S. Lewis was obviously hugely religious, and a god fairy man, Yes. So it really makes sense at the time. I didn't realize that, and I thought it was just a cool idea.
1: I never read that one. I gotta check that out. I know, I remember you having it and talking about it, and I remember it was like, it looked like a pretty quick read. It's real short. You yeah. can read it over the weekend. Yeah, easily. I gotta check that out. That's what really else you cool. got? Well, I I have always loved reading. I definitely have read a lot of books that were, like, on the, the banned books list, but a huge number of those were actually books that I read for school that were assigned to us. And a lot of them were assigned to us because they were banned. But I definitely, especially going into college, read some shit that would for sure land me on some lists. But going back to like middle school, I remember doing a report on Vlad the Impaler. Because for a while I was like super interested in, I don't, would you call them like medieval serial killers? What would yeah, you, call you them? have yeah. to medieval serial killer so vlad the impaler there was also this book i actually still have it i don't think that it would still be as good because i think it's written for more young adults but i just had to hold on to it because when i had it when i first got it i read it like three or four times and it's called the blood confession and it is a first person story written from the perspective of elizabeth bathory and it is fucking awesome that sounds fun it is so much fun So cool. I read that book like three or four times. So that was like the kind of stuff that I was reading in middle school, like the medieval serial killers. And then usually when I would go to the library, I was super into books on like, even as a little kid, like infectious diseases and all the horrific things that can happen to a person. And I guess it's like an anxious curiosity, like what can happen to me? What do I need to look out for? So In my young life, most of the stuff I would check out would be things like that. And then as I got farther into high school and got a little bit older, of course, I've always been super into horror and true crime. So I imagine that any of the true crime stuff that I would read would be flagged. But I never read, like, uh, Helter Skelter. I never read Stranger Beside Me, any of that stuff, like the actual novels. I did read a book Several years ago, is written from the perspective of the daughter of the Happy Face Killer.
0: Oh, she has a podcast too, right?
1: Yeah, I listened to the podcast too, and it's the podcast is great. It's just really I don't want to give anything away or you enjoyed the book or more? critique it. Yeah, I enjoyed the book more, but both the book and the podcast got a little weird towards the end. That's all I'm gonna say. Okay, and it's it's completely understandable that it would get weird. So that's all I'll say. But yeah, a lot of serial killer stuff, a lot of horror stuff. I read every horror story I could get my hands on. I think what would have really landed me on those lists would have started when I got into college. And as you know, I majored in women's studies. And I feel like every single book that I read for that major would have landed me on some list. Yeah. (laughs) And then, of course, I, I was looking up lists of banned books today just out of curiosity. And like I said, most of these were books that I read in school. So there's Catcher in the Rye, Lord of the Flies... Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter were on the banned books list, which isn't super surprising. So I was going to
0: ask you, when you say a banned book list, like, who makes this list and who banned it and where is it banned?
1: I don't know who banned them. Sometimes it'll just be, like, certain areas or certain schools. Like, actually, when I was in—this is the earliest instance of this that I can remember— when I was in elementary school, the scary stories to tell in the dark books were huge at the time. And, of course, I was obsessed with them, particularly the artwork— And we had them at my school library and I would check them out every chance I got. Like I would just, it got to the point where it was silly that I didn't just buy them. I have them now, thanks to my brother. But those books were actually banned at my school and a bunch of other elementary schools because they were quote unquote too scary and too graphic for kids. Yeah. So I ended up hanging on to one of them and never brought it back to the library. And I left fifth grade and went to middle school. I kept it for years. I had it for years. Like, I'm not giving this shit back. It's mine. <laughs> you can't take it away. <laughs> ben, anyways, who needs yeah, to check it out? I'm, t- I'm keeping this. I'm going to be going to middle school. I'm not going to be here anymore. You can't catch me. I'm taking it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a rebel, Alicia.
1: I'm a rebel. I stole a book. I don't know what happened to it though. I don't have anymore. Now I have the new set that I got for Christmas. Yeah. I definitely also, it's not books, but if anyone checked my internet search history or Reddit search history, like, just fucked up stuff or on Reddit, I'll type in, like, What's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? Or what's the most fucked up thing you've ever seen? And I love looking up EMT stories and hospital stories and just crazy shit.
0: Yeah, you're a big fan of the first person accounts.
1: Yeah. And again, it's not like a I enjoy things that are fucked up. It's just a morbid, anxious curiosity. And I love hearing other people's first hand stories about almost anything. Yeah. I love it.
0: So, yeah, amongst all of those, I feel like I would have been on Somerset's list.
1: For sure. That was fun. That made me nostalgic for a lot of the old books that I used to read.
0: Yeah, for sure. I know, I was thinking the same thing. Except for, I feel like I would still love all of these, but for a different reason and a different way. I know I was in a much darker mindset and not looking at it through the healthiest lens. Yeah. Well, you already talked about, the seven?
1: Hell yes. So if you had to sum it up in just a few sentences, what would you say this movie is about?
0: I would say it's about two detectives in pursuit of a serial killer. Pretty simple, or is it? No, I mean that's pretty much. Yeah,
1: it's pretty. It's pretty straightforward. It doesn't waste any time.
0: No, and I like that. One thing I was uh, reading an article article by Mindfloth, They do bullshit, and they brought up a good point in regards to this movie and kind of the '90s because they brought up that the '80s was kind of the decade of silent. Faceless, mechanical, slow, unstoppable killers. Slashers and shit like that. Yeah. Whereas the 90s brought about the wave of the methodical, high IQ, leading detectives on this run around, always five steps ahead kind of killers. Love it. That was brought in by none other than Silence of the Lambs. Which
1: is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Yeah, and
0: it was one of the few movies, I don't think they actually call themselves a horror movie. Again, because horror movies aren't respected and they don't want awards. but it was considered a thriller. And it was one of the few thrillers that won as many awards as it did. Yeah. And still, obviously, notably, one of the best horror movies ever made, or thriller movies, if you will. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a neat thing, and everybody was kind of looking at it. It's already been five years into this whole high IQ killer situation, and people were skeptical of this movie, kind of falling flat on its face because of that, and it did not disappoint.
1: It certainly did not. I honestly enjoyed every second of this movie. I mean, this is a two-hour movie, and there was no point where I was checking the clock or getting distracted. Like, I I was in all the way the whole time.
0: No, the pacing's great. Yeah. The dialogue is great. Yeah, the
1: script was fantastic.
0: Absolutely. And that was one of the strong parts about this. And it was, I was reading about that. The script writer was a a first-timer. He'd gone to school wanting to get into the industry. And it had been like a few years since he'd graduated. And he was working at Tower Records. And was kind of dismayed with life and depressed. And he literally wrote the script because of how fucking depressed he was. Wow. And kind of had this idea of like this methodical serial killer and, you know, using the, the seven deadly sins as his justification for killing people and sent it along to somebody he knew in the industry. He had a connection and they liked the idea behind it. But even then, the guy's like, you seriously need professional help, <laughs> which is kind of sad. And I think they kind of, he's credited with the script, so they didn't just, like, steal it from him. But I thought that was kind of, I I really find those stories almost, I don't want to necessarily say inspiring, but I guess hopeful. I, I love it when I hear about someone just wrote this script, or this book, or this thing, and it was able to just launch into something as grandiose and as impactful as Seven is. Or you hear about Cabin in the Woods, how they wrote it over a weekend. I yeah. love that shit. But it makes me hopeful that other writers out there or people with ideas that will get noticed or who knows what could happen. Sorry, that was just a random tangent.
1: No, I love that. I feel like there are going to be a lot of random tangents in this episode. And that's one of the things I love about this movie. There is so much to talk about, so much to think about, and just like I said, this is a perfect movie. The performances are fantastic. I have no issues with any of the acting at any point. Nobody. It looks great. It has, like, it's so gritty and so grimy. It really just puts you there with Mills and Somerset. Oh,
0: yeah. It's dank. Like, it's you depressing. Are, it's dark.
1: You are in the depths with them.
0: Yeah. Every step of the way.
1: Yeah. It's fantastic. The score was great. And I'm not just, you know, referring to the... Beginning credits where we get Nine Inch Nails, which is already, you know, bumps up a beer automatically. But also, side note, that is the correct use for Closer in a movie. Fuck yes. The Hitcher remake. (laughs) (laughs) That is the correct scenario to use that song.
0: I also had heard or read on a different article that that intro is kind of credited with starting this whole... Phenomena of awesome intros for movies and for shows. Nice. And it was done by Kyle Cooper, kind of on a whim. I guess David Fincher was looking to actually have the intro be of like Mills and Somerset doing something, mm-hmm. like looking for clues or some shit. Yeah. And he had to go show the producers like where they were at, what was going on, and he asked. Kyle, who was working on the team, like, hey, can you throw, like, an intro together real quick? And he put this scene together, and other directors have actually jokingly said, like, don't hire that guy. He's going to make your intro better than your movie. Oh, shit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They're like, (laughs) like, yoink, we'll take him.
0: (laughs) But I thought that was really fucking cool. he kind of credited with, like, starting that whole idea of having the intro be almost like a short movie or, you know, being a storytelling element rather than just a filler.
1: Oh, I love the intro, too. It really puts you in that headspace that you need to be in for this movie. Yeah,
0: it puts you in the killer's headspace. Yeah. Which, as a detective, you are trying to do.
1: Yeah. So, do you want to get into the characters a little bit? Sure. So, we have Detective William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, and Detective David Mills, played by Brad Pitt. And I love the opening scene because it it gives us a really detailed snapshot of somerset without saying too much so it immediately opens up on a murder scene and he's walking through this apartment and he brought something to the other detectives attention that has always been something that never really sat right with me which is using the term a crime of passion and you know especially like the way that this movie comes full circle and how it ends It adds a whole different layer to that term, to what it means to commit a crime of passion. But just something about those specific words always kind of just didn't really sit right with me. So the other officers are kind of dismissively waving it off and saying, crime of passion, that's what it was. And then Somerset looks at the blood spattered all over the walls and just kind of sardonically says, yeah, just look at all the passion all over this wall. You can tell right away he's jaded, he's tired, and we find out pretty soon after that he is six days from retiring, from leaving the force for good. We also get the impression that the other officers can't wait to get rid of him. They don't like him. And it seems like there are a lot of reasons for that that we'll get into, I'm sure. But I thought that was a good snapshot, just quickly introducing you to Detective Somerset.
0: Yeah, I think it gives you the perspective that even at this point in his career, he does not look at anything, even the choice of wording, and take it for granted. Yeah. He kind of does what a comedian does, and they'll take like common phrases or something and kind of point out how ridiculous they are, but you're so used to hearing it that it doesn't ever register you that it's weird. But for him to mention that and to see it, it kind of gives you the impression that Here's a guy who thinks differently and thinks about everything that is presented to him, even in his own line of work. Yes. He's and willing to question all of those things.
1: Definitely. And throughout this movie, I kept saying, I commend this movie for just going for full 100% nihilism from beginning to end. And now that I'm saying that word, I feel like calling it nihilistic is kind of a mistake. And I feel like pessimistic would be more accurate But just to go into that a little bit further, I would say that Somerset is definitely a pessimist. And I would also say that that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just happens to be a side effect of having done what he's done for so long. And on top of that, like being a pessimist doesn't mean that you don't care. Not at all. He cares so much. And one of the first things he says after the crime of passion comment is he asks in a tone of concern, because this was a, a couple, I think it was a... A woman murdered her partner, and he asks if their kid witnessed it, if he saw it. And the other officers, almost aggressively and angrily, said, Who fucking cares if he saw it? Why do you ask such stupid questions? And then they straight up tell him, like, I can't wait until you're out of here. I can't wait to be rid of you. And it's just, they're almost aggressively, violently apathetic. Right. And he's the opposite of that.
0: And I think that scene is important, especially... This time around, watching it and realizing how much, how many elements from that first scene literally do come full circle in the very end. Yes. The apathy, the crime of passion, the the sense that there's no conclusion to anything, that things are just as they seem. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot of things in that very first scene that seriously, it sounds cliche to say it, but literally come back full circle and. I think that's kind of a testament to whether or not that was initially in there, but one way or another is a testament to good writing.
1: 100%. So then Detective David Mills struts in. Did you want to talk about him a little bit?
0: Yeah, so we got Brad, we got the pit.
1: <laughs> 90s, full 90s Brad. Pitt. Full 90s
0: pit. And he's going to essentially take over for Somerset. So he's there kind of mirroring on this case. And when he first shows up, Somerset's pretty dismissive with him and really doesn't want to have anything to do with him. You know, he, he kind of sees Pitt as a, or middle, I should say, as just cocky and arrogant and ignorant. He doesn't want to waste his time talking with him. He sends him off on coffee runs or going around doing routine door-to-door screenings, you know, knocking on doors instead of checking out the investigation because he's like... Well, you know what? a small room, and you're probably going to fuck something up. So I had a choice to make, and I'm going to figure out, you know, work on the crime scene here while you go jerk yourself off.
1: Exactly. But he says it
0: in a much more elegant way than that, obviously.
1: And, you know, Somerset gets a read on Mills pretty quickly. I think the most telling thing about Mills for Somerset is the fact that Mills came here. We're assuming that this is New York City. I'm pretty sure it's New York City. Yeah, I think Um, they
0: explicitly say that. Yeah,
1: because they they mention upstate at some point. But he questions why on earth he would go from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, to here, what he refers to as the city of brotherly hate. Not only that he was transferred here, but that he begged to be transferred here. And that was a red flag for Somerset. He feels like, why would anybody in their right mind want to come here?
0: Right. And Mills kind of puts forth this... Idea that he's looking to make a difference and do something more, and that may or may not be true. But I think Somerset ultimately looks at it is that you're just trying to get ahead.
1: Yeah, like and this, I, a, this yeah. is a
0: way for you to prove yourself. It's more of an ego thing than it is a good natured, altruistic move.
1: Yeah. Well, judging by how this movie unfolds and and what we know about it, just being completely pessimistic, one hundred percent from beginning to the end credits. It becomes pretty clear that Mills is a loose cannon and that he's an angry person and he just wants to get these guys as many as he can.
0: There's also a a line where when Somerset asks him that, like, why did you ask to be relocated? Why did you want this position? Mills says something along the lines of like, well, you know, same reason you didn't. And Somerset's like, you just met me. How do you know anything about me? And I I like that dynamic because it was, again, looking at that whole idea of that when people talk to each other or it's like, oh, I know you, you're just like everybody else. And Somerset straight out was like, what the fuck? You don't know anything about me. Why would you even think to assume that you and I have the same inclination or justification for doing anything right off the bat without knowing anything about me?
1: These two could not be any more opposite. No. There's actually a couple scenes also close to the beginning that I feel really shows this contrast between the two of them that I really appreciated and really liked and we just kind of get a snapshot of each of their lives and how they conduct themselves and how they carry themselves and these two scenes just say a lot about them as people as characters so we see Mills wake up in his new apartment with his wife Tracy who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow so we get a look at his new apartment and even though they just moved in It's still, the place is completely in shambles, there's boxes everywhere, and then he just rolls out of bed, crusty as hell, throws on a wrinkled shirt, gets a tie that's already been tied and puts it around his neck, doesn't do anything with his hair, and basically just like goes out the door to go to work. And then we see Somerset in his routine, he's always wearing crisp, clean suits, clean clothes, his apartment is immaculate, and he goes to sleep, sitting up in bed, and Falls asleep to a metronome every night, right? Which I really liked. I loved those two scenes, like put next to each other.
0: Yeah, it again puts forth that idea that Somerset is a deliberate man. Yes, and everything that yeah. he does,
1: even like during the dinner scene when Tracy invites Somerset for dinner, Somerset is a wine drinker, and Mills is a beer straight from the bottle mm-hmm. drinker. Like everything about them is just complete opposite,
0: right? kind of brow, highbrow, lowbrow situation.
1: Yeah. So pretty quick into the movie. They don't waste any time here. We get our first murder. So they're called to this crime scene and they walk in and the first thing that hits them is the smell. I mean, every scene in this movie is unforgettable, but this is like the first one that just gets burned into your brain where you realize, I've never seen anything like this Mm -hmm. before. This is something different. So they walk in and they see this enormous man hunched over a bowl of food on a table, just like blue and blotchy and starting to decompose. And upon further investigation, they see that his hands and feet are bound with barbed wire under the table.
0: Yeah, he's hog-tied.
1: Yeah. This is like where you really get the griminess and the just gross atmosphere of this movie. Mills looks under the table and there's a bucket. So he does the logical thing and sticks his entire face in it to see what it is. And it's just a bucket of vomit.
0: Yeah, and he goes back kicking and just, you know, just disgusted with it. And it's about this time that Somerset basically sends him out. And it's like, hey, can you go check on the neighbors and see if they saw anything? And it's this kind of interesting, because they're both detectives, but obviously Somerset's the lead detective. And you can tell Pitt is pissed, or Mills yeah. is pissed off. Hey, but he doesn't want to like throw it out right away because it's still day one and a half at this point. Yeah, and he'll deal with it later. But immediately, Mill or Summer says, "Just like I don't want any of your shit. You're obviously completely unprofessional." And just the his comments too when he sees the giant man there, he makes some kind of you know derogatory comment about how fat he is, yeah. essentially. Or along I, with the other officers, yeah, like they else. don't
1: see this guy as someone human. who is a, a human being. Yeah.
0: Right, and. I don't know about you, but the first, like you said, the first time seeing this movie, every one of the kills in this are just burned in my, into my memory. Yeah. But that one was just like, like you said, you hadn't seen anything like that. This, this decomposing, enormous human being. And then when you come to find out that he has been literally fed to death, like forced to eat until he basically ruptured from the inside. Yeah. And there's a point where afterwards in the autopsy the, yeah, I guess the coroner is discussing with uh, both Mills and Somerset what he found and saying that his stomach was just completely stretched to just an enormous capacity.
1: Yeah, and that the inside wall was like ripped open. Ripped
0: open and that essentially it looked like he'd been kicked as the final thing to like make it rupture. And Somerset found that There's receipts showing that the killer went out, bought all this food, came back, hogtied the guy, and forced him to eat everything, and midway through the process of hours of doing this, ran out of food and had to go back to the store and came back with a new bag of food to continue the process. And Somerset's just like, this is not your run-of-the-mill murder.
1: No. And this is part of not just the brilliance in general, but the horror brilliance of this movie is you do not see a single murder on screen until the very end of the movie Mm -hmm. and the climax. To me, that is so much more horrifying because you see the aftermath of what happened to these people. And then you have the detectives piecing together together. What happened, and you were forced to sit there with your thoughts and imagine what these people went through and the suffering that they endured Absolutely. at the hands of this faceless killer.
0: Yeah, the the it's ability terrifying. to throw your mind or make you the one to have to perform these acts. Yes. On these humans that it's you've horrifying. seen. It's very well done. It was yeah. a great way to do that.
1: It's haunting.
0: It is, and I think that's why it's so memorable. Yeah. In some capacity, or at least part of the capacity. And at this point, Somerset is just like, I can't... Dude, I got fucking six days before I'm retiring. Like yeah. I can't get involved with this. There's no end to this. Yeah, This is not something you solve in a week. This isn't husband-killed-his-wife type of situation. Like, I can't go out like this. Yeah. And the, the chief is like, well, too bad. You're the one on the job. You're the only one we've got. And Somerset's also like... And secondly, this fucking guy right here... Pointing to Mills shouldn't have the case either. Yeah, like this should he, not be his first he's, case. Like, way in too city. immature for this, yeah. essentially.
1: And that, yeah. at that point, the lieutenant is like, okay, get out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to Mills. He's like, yeah. you're right. Yeah, no, <laughs> Mills, like, Mills,
0: cut it. You're done. Beat it. And then we get
1: our next kill. Sorry, I wanted to add one more thing before we get to the next kill. Somerset has already decided he doesn't want to do this and says, take me off of it. And this is, you know, with the belief that this is a one off murder. Although Somerset does believe that whoever this killer is, is very methodical, has possibly done something like this before, or has been planning it for a long time. And then after he expresses that he doesn't want to be on his case, I don't remember who it was, it might have been Mills or one of the other detectives, they get this little bottle that has like metal or plastic shavings in it, and put it on his desk, and said, we found this in the guy's stomach. They were fed to him.
0: That was quite a while later, actually.
1: Okay, because... Somerset goes back to that first crime scene and finds where those metal shavings or plastic shavings had been scraped from, moves the refrigerator by them, and written in the wall with, I think it was grease? Grease, yeah. It's a gluttony.
0: Yeah, so we actually get that after the Simon kill. Okay. That's how we know that the two are connected And then later. he immediately
1: realizes, like, this is a serial killer. You can well, expect five more Well, he knew from the get-go that this yeah. was a
0: serial killer. And, that, and the detective's like, dude, we got one body. He's like, I don't care. This is a fucking serial killer. Yeah. And at that point, that's when he separates Mills and Somerset. He's like, well, you're the man for the job, so deal with it. And at the same time, Mills is off on his own case and they're separated. And Mills is dealing with a case of a lawyer who has been found in his office in this high, high rise, you know, fancy, cause he's like one of the best defense lawyers in the whole city. Immensely powerful, immensely rich. And he is found over a three-day holiday weekend coming back in his, you know, this gigantic office. And he is bent over a table, essentially, like a small foot table. Also, he has a, like a butcher's knife in one hand or some type of knife. And the side of his body has a huge chunk of meat just cut out of it. And on the carpet... Written in his blood is greed, the word greed, and his flesh is on the scale that is counterbalanced by one pound. And it's that later on after this point is when they get the autopsy, that's when they find the scrapings, and Somerset goes back and finds that it was written gluttony on the back of this other dude. Oh, shit. And now they have to join forces again because they realize they're dealing with the same killer.
1: Yeah, and this is it's so crazy to think about because this happens within two days. So the gluttony crime scene, they find the first day. And then the next day is when Mills is called to this second crime scene. Right. So this is happening quickly, very quickly. So Somerset immediately tells the other detectives, you can guarantee there are going to be five more of these expect five more of these. Cause there are five more deadly sins."
0: He immediately puts it together while yeah. it's going on. Also in, in retrospect, I think the next kill is so representative of how methodical this guy is that this this is the point when they really realize or begin to realize what they're up against. Yeah. And that this is not your average run-of-the-mill serial killer either because of how well everything is executed and planned. And I guess it does bear noting that in the lawyer's death, in the greed situation, they can't find anything. They find that he has, with that pound of flesh thing... Oh, you know, actually, I do want to mention something. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, actually. one of my favorite non-murder scenes, if you will, is that Detective Mills... I'm sorry, not Mills, Somerset, goes to his favorite library Yeah. to start investigating these things. I love that And scene. he realizes that, at this point, they still don't have joined forces. But he realizes that Mills is in way over his fucking head. And he has no idea what he's doing. Yeah. And as such, Somerset's the type of guy who is not there for egotistical purposes. And he's there to figure this thing out and try to stop the person if he can. But ultimately, he basically spends the entire night doing all this research on the seven deadly sins. And looking at all these different books like Dante's Inferno and The Canterbury Tales. And everything he can get his hands on where they mention sins and the de- deadly sins and he basically makes mills a list of books to look at as well as kind of creating his own cheat sheet of making photocopies of stuff and things to look at and presents it all and drops it off on mills desk to because look at. he
1: knows mills won't actually read the books right. or get anything out of them and
0: and to further that when he gives mills that list of books to go check out the first thing he does is has one of the deputies go buy the cliff notes for those books.
1: Yeah, because after becoming incredibly frustrated because he's just reading the notes that Somerset gave him and he gets so frustrated he throws it down, he's like, Fucking Dante
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck piece of shit, Dante.
1: Yeah, he drops a very unsavoury yes. 90s slur that we don't like. But yeah, he's this is like one of the first moments where we really see his temper and his anger and his impatience.
0: Yeah, immediately. But I just want to bring all that up because it's in this whole thing that in the greed situation, they are able to realize that one of the paintings is hung up upside down. And they didn't notice it at first because it's one of those stupid abstract paintings. Yeah. That's just a bunch of blotches and colors and stuff like that. So unless you're familiar with the artist's painting, you'd have no idea. But his wife notices, the lawyer's wife, and when they go and fingerprint behind there, they see, and these just perfect fingerprints, help me. So cool. Which was awesome.
1: And this is a good indication of how deliberate this killer is, and it's very chilling if you think about it, because at that greed crime scene, there's the, the picture of his wife on the desk, and she has like these blood spectacles around her eyes, like these rings around her eyes drawn in blood. And Mills looks at the picture and says we have to talk to her. She saw something. Like, the killer is telling us that she saw something. So we realize at this point, the killer wants them to put these clues together and wants them to figure it out and talk to people and find the next clue and discover the next murder. And that just adds a whole new layer of horror and just makes you realize, like, this guy has the upper hand.
0: Big time. And furthermore, when they actually are able to identify these fingerprints through the AFIS system, it takes several days, or at least a couple days, and they find it, and it's just like this run-of-the-mill junkie with a bad history yeah. of, like, drugs and stuff. And immediately, it's the first time that Mills and Somerset are on the same page of saying that it's not right. Yeah, like, this isn't our guy, but we have to go. And they get the SWAT team out, and they go check it out, and this one, again, every single one of these de- deaths are memorable. This one I remember being just unbelievably fucked up. This, this one, one haunted me.
1: me the most, for sure.
0: Just the, the capacity of... And they go into that, too. But essentially, they go into this just shitty little apartment with nothing going on inside of it. And as they're running through this whole SWAT team, this tactical force, the whole ceiling has all these hanging air fresheners like you'd hang in your car. Just hundreds of them. All over the place. And they can't find this dude, and they finally run in, and they just see him laying down in bed, and so they have their gun on him, and they're all freaking out and shit.
1: And this guy is...
0: Completely emaciated, his bones are sticking out. He literally looks like a mummy, like he's just been mummified, or a rotting corpse.
1: one of his hands has been severed. Yeah, and he's just, his neck's all
0: twisted back, and he looks all just completely dead. Dead for months. That's what he looks like. And as they're going over, one of the the lead SWAT dude kind of leans into him and says, you got what you deserved, you fuck. Or something like that. Make some kind of comment. And the guy just goes... <laughs> 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 and like, they everybody like flips back and like jumps a fucking mile and shits a brick. Oh
1: my god. And
0: I love that. I love It actually reminded me of, uh, there's this... I'm sorry. I got off on a little tangent if you don't mind. Go for it. Because here you have these big bad swat dudes and everything and they all jump like little chickens. Don't get me wrong. I would have jumped too. (laughs) But that being said, it reminds me, and Crystal if you're listening to this, you're going to love this one. There's this portion of Shark Week where they have this guy who (laughs) was a marine, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he was a marine. He
0: was a marine and he's coming up and he's on this boat, right? And they're docked. It's a docked boat but it's out you know on the water there and he's going off and he's like i've been through iraq and i've been doing all this stuff and i've seen some pretty serious situations but i think i can handle some great white sharks and kind of going off and doing his spiel all big and bad and he's standing in this dinghy that's off to the side of the boat also docked as he's doing this and he's kind of going through like, we're going to get up close and personal with these sharks and show you how great they are and blah, blah. And as he's doing that, a great white shark comes up and bites the fucking dinghy. Oh, and God. this guy jumps like you wouldn't believe and like screams and it's the best. <laughs> and again, don't get me wrong. I would too. But it was just the juxtaposition of the the front that was being put on versus the reaction to an actual... Threat
1: totally, it cut them completely, <laughs> completely off, guard. off guard,
0: and I thought it was hilarious. Anyway, this scene kind of reminded me of that
1: 100%. This scene will always be one of the most haunting scenes in this movie to me. Just it's already a horrifying image, like walking into this room. I mean, the first thing, just seeing the air fresheners, hundreds of air fresheners hanging from the ceiling, you know, it's not good, and then you see this elaborate display of all these air fresheners hanging over the bed this guy bound to the bed giant teeth he looks completely skeletal like you said he looks like a mummy and then when you realize that this guy is still alive it's so fucking terrifying
0: absolutely
1: oh and my they God. find
0: later that when he's in the hospital the doctors you know both somerset and mill obviously want to talk to the dude yeah and he's like even if he was not in complete shock which he is, like if you shined a flashlight in his eyes, he would die right away. Yeah. Even besides all that, he ate his tongue months ago.
1: Oh my god. And then you find out that this guy has been kept like this for a year.
0: I to pull, the day. To the And that's where I was trying to get at. It took me a long time because I realized there was more. And I feel like between all the other aspects of them getting the clues with the, the wife with the eyes and the fingerprints on the wall... And the fact that they were able to walk in on this scene a year to the day that this guy was kept. That is when Somerset is like, can you fathom the patience that that takes?
1: And this is... Like, just take a minute to
0: fathom the patience it takes to pull that off.
1: And that's important because this is the point where, again, we see the complete opposite natures of Mills and Somerset. And this is the first time where Somerset really begins to notice Mills' anger issues. And Mills is obviously understandably horrified by this scene. He's already worked in homicide for five years. He's not necessarily a rookie, but this is, he's a rookie here in this place on this case. And this is where, you know, he, he's so eager and desperate to dismiss this guy as a lunatic. He keeps calling him a lunatic. And Somerset very deliberately and almost desperately pleads with him to not dismiss this guy as a lunatic and warns him how dangerous that is and that this is, this is a human being, whether you want to believe that or not. This It's just a man. Don't make the mistake of dismissing him as a lunatic. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. And this is where Mills says, I feed off my emotions. So he says that, and then Somerset, again, is basically desperately trying to instill as much of his knowledge in Mills as possible before he leaves the forest and before he's gone. And one of the first things that Somerset says to Mills at the very beginning of the movie, when Mills asks him, like, what do you want from me? Somerset says, I want you to look and I want you to listen. And... It's very clear that Mills can do neither of those things. And after this scene, this one obviously upsets him greatly. This particular murder and just the entire situation and the horror of it and how fast it's progressing. And how they know that this guy is constantly three steps ahead of them. It's such a small line, but Somerset says, are you listening? And Mills responds, I hear you.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I like yeah. that about too.
1: Yeah, like I hear you, but I'm not fucking listening. Right. He's impulsive. He's a loose cannon. He's reckless. He's desperate to dismiss this guy as a lunatic. And not too long after this, it's before things really take a turn, Somerset is talking to Mills, and they're kind of starting to bond a little bit at this point, or at least, you know, understand that they are united for a common goal. And he reminds Mills again, this guy's not the devil, he's just a man. And then he goes on to say, I don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces apathy as if it's a virtue and I don't know about you but I feel like dismissing somebody as a lunatic or as a monster or as the devil is a form of apathy because to truly understand that this is another human being who's doing these things, it just requires you to be in that mindset. And imagining another human being committing these horrific acts. It puts you in a much darker place than just saying, oh, well, that's a monster. This is outside of our realm of understanding. And we'll never understand it, so I'm not going to try to understand it. He's just a monster.
0: Yeah, you have to have the capacity to feel
1: Yeah. And Mills is not okay with that, which ends up being his downfall.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think one of the major overarching themes of this whole movie is dealing with that concept of apathy and a a society with apathy and what that leads to and what it has led to and how you see it from the very beginning you see it through multiple points and even and it's kind of strange in a way because the we find out later that that is why according to him the killer is doing what he's doing because the world is so apathetic and that they will not listen and they He makes a comment that you can't just simply poke someone in the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them over the head with a sledgehammer because they're so fucking apathetic. Yeah. And in a weird way, in that vein, both the detectives, at least Somerset, and this heinous killer see eye to eye. Yeah. And the fact that that really is the bane of this society that they're portraying they're just going about it in different ways how to address it
1: and Mills seems to be under the mistaken impression that Somerset is so jaded and has been doing this for so long that he doesn't care anymore and Somerset makes it very clear that that couldn't be farther from the truth and this is kind of during that same conversation and then Mills basically almost angrily demands to know like then why are you doing this why are we doing this what's the point of all this if you don't believe that these things get solved most of the time or if you believe that this guy has the upper hand and he says something the line was we are picking up diamonds on a deserted island just in case we get rescued basically our job is to pick up the pieces file the reports show up in court do the work with the smallest glimmer of hope that maybe someday one of these guys will be caught but they probably won't, but we still have to do it. Right. So it's very clear at this point, like, it's not that Somerset doesn't care. He cares very much, and he cares so much that it's, in a lot of ways, it's taken over his life in a very negative way. It's completely destroyed his faith in humanity, but he doesn't give up. He can't give up. What was the point where the photographer shows up on the stairs and then Mills freaks out? Was that while they were in the building, uh, the apartment building, where they found the third victim? Is that the same building?
0: If I'm not mistaken...
1: I'm getting a little confused with the timeline here.
0: Yeah, me too. I think it was... I feel like it was after the Pride. Okay. Because Pride was next. That was the... You had this, like, supermodel woman. And that was kind of a quick one. But he essentially super glued a telephone in one hand and a bottle of sleeping pills in the other and he had cut off her nose and somerset makes the comment like do you see what he did he gave her the choice you know call for help but live disfigured or end it now so she killed herself and i think as a if i'm not mistaken i could be i don't know i get a little confused on that part too but on one of these crime scenes there's a photographer that comes up early in the morning and you know starts asking questions about what happened and, like takes a picture and Mills flips his fucking shit. Yeah. Just starts yelling and berating this guy.
1: And tries like, to attack him. Yeah. Doesn't he break his camera or something? Yeah, breaks his yeah. camera.
0: And it's at that point that Somerset makes a comment, you know, like, dude, what the fuck? Right? And he's like, well, I'm sorry. Those guys, they just, they just pissed me off. Like, how did they even get here anyways?
1: I think and, that's where he makes the joke about what he said earlier about feeding off his emotions.
0: Somerset does, yeah. yeah.
1: Somerset makes a joke to Mills.
0: It wasn't a joke, he was just Yeah, I mean, he's
1: horrified, but he's also kind of like, you know, giving him shit for it. Yeah, he was very
0: sarcastically, you know, mentioning, you know, no, it's super impressive to see uh, a grown-ass man feed off his emotions like that. Yeah. And later on, I think it's shortly after this, because they're both exasperated, they're getting nowhere, more people are dying, that's when they, Somerset uses connection with the FBI to start looking into the FBI request, and... They get a hit on this possible, there's a few different names, but one of them makes the most sense of a possibility of who this could be mm-hmm. based on the books they've been checking out at the library. We don't want to blow by blow, but this is where they actually get into the apartment building of the killer. Yeah. Yeah. Because they go check it out, and there's this, like, chase scene, because he busts out of there, and Mills is chasing after him, and I guess I, I read that Brad Pitt actually seriously fucked his arm up on that.
1: Oh, shit.
0: He uh, While he was doing that chase scene, he actually bashed his hand through a windshield, oh. and had sliced up his arm, and it went all the way to the bone. Oh, man. And he wasn't able to use his arm anymore, and that's why he's actually in a sling for the rest of the movie. So, they wrote it into the script that he's in a sling, and for the scenes that were supposed to be prior to that, they just, if you, I guess if you pay attention, they just try to hide his arm or he doesn't like use it. But that's why, because he actually was in a cast for the rest of the movie. That's
1: crazy. And that was such an intense scene. It was. So, they're outside of the door, and this guy comes around the corner with like an armful of groceries, and then he sees Somerset and Mills standing outside of his apartment and immediately pulls out a gun and starts shooting at him, and then this crazy intense chase takes place
0: yeah so they're just running all everything and mills gets bested through this whole thing yeah. and the killer actually actually has him at gunpoint with his gun to the side of his head and then lets him go but i think at, at that point he actually says something along the lines of how much i respect you or he says something to him doesn't he
1: i think he does or he, like, commends the cops for, like, what a great job they're doing or something. Yeah,
0: he made some kind of comment yeah. like, having respect or commendations for the work that they're doing. Yeah. And then he runs off. Yeah, but at this point, they're actually able to get into the apartment illegally and then bullshit their way and bribe a homeless person into saying that they got a, a lead on this thing. But that is bringing up that photographer situation. They go in and find this dark room... And it's the photographs of them up on the stairs. And that's when Mills, again, is flipping his shit. Because he realizes, like, motherfucker, you that... right in front of us.
1: I love that so I did too. much. I thought when that, he finds that That picture... first time
0: I read, or not read that, the first time I saw that. Oh, my God. Oh, I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And then they're going through and they can't find a single fingerprint in the entire apartment. And on the wall, there's these, like, shadow boxes. And there's essentially seven of them. And each one of them, up to this point, has some kind of either photograph or memorabilia or something from each one of the kills. Which I had, for some reason, I don't know why, I had not noticed that every other time I would watched this movie. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. And there's another part where they're looking through and he has all these composite notebooks.
1: Like hundreds of them. Hundreds
0: of them that are written nonstop from edge to edge. And Somerset's going through reading these things, and there's no dates, no order to anything. It's just, he makes a note, like, it's just this man's mind poured out onto paper.
1: Yeah, and he's like, we don't have time for this. It would We have a couple days, he's doing a murder a day right now, and it would take, even if we had the entire force on it, at least two weeks to read all of these. Right. We don't have time.
0: I read something neat about that, because I always thought that was a really powerful scene. Uh Like Because you actually get to see some of the pages as he's flipping through and everything. Every single one of those notebooks is actually filled with not just random shit either. They had their crew go through. It took them over two months and apparently estimated to add an extra $15,000 to the production of user time to go through and fill those out with what they feel the killer would have been thinking or the daily journals would have been like.
1: That's intense.
0: I thought that was really neat. Yeah. It wasn't... I, I figured they did it for that one, and even that I was thinking would be time-consuming, but they literally did it for every single one for whatever reason. That's... Just to wow. give it that extra... Because, you know, when a book is written to it, it has an extra expansion to it, and I, it gives it that feel. Like, you feel like that those books are written in.
1: Yeah. It really does add a, a weight to it. It does. The only note I have for the next murder is, fuck.
0: Yeah, that was... This one, to me, even though Pride and Lust are both relatively one-offs, they they kind of run through them pretty quickly compared to the other ones, I would say, but Lust, the first time I saw that as well, every single one of these is just unbelievably memorable. It makes
1: me cringe every single time. It's just horrifying.
0: Yeah, they go down into this New York sex den, nightclub type of thing, where it's, you know, regular prostitution and rooms and red light district type of thing, and there's this guy there just sobbing and hyperventilating and is wearing basically a knife dildo strap on
1: and he's screaming get this thing off yeah. me, get it off me
0: and like you just kind of see it in the corner of the room almost like a peripheral on the camera and you see this woman just splayed out and just glorified
1: Yeah, and you don't see a lot. Like, there's not a lot of gore in this movie, but you see enough to where your imagination expertly fills in the rest, Mm -hmm. and it is fucked up.
0: Yeah, and so he basically had this... Force this man to strap this knife dildo on and fornicate with this woman with it. Oh, my God, it's so horrifying to think about. That
1: scene where they have him in the interrogation room, and he's, like, hysterically hyperventilating and sobbing and explaining what he was made to do was just to me that was like some of the best acting in this movie that was that was
0: great i was reading something on that too where that actor would every scene that he did he would get a bag and literally like make himself hyperventilate to the point of almost passing out so he couldn't breathe oh wow so that he would have that look and that feel and so that when he was talking he was literally hyperventilating oh damn and it shows yeah it's very impactful
1: (laughs) very wow that's cool I yeah, didn't know that.
0: I didn't either. I was like, wow. damn. I appreciated how seriously everyone took this film. Man,
1: that really stuck roles. with me. So it moves forward pretty quickly after this. So we've had five murders so far. We know that there's still wrath and envy left. And it was kind of funny when we were watching this. I said out loud, like, toward the beginning, like, but I remember all of them except for envy. I don't remember what envy is. And you were just quiet. <laughs> and then at the end, I was like, oh, my God, how could I forget that? <laughs>
0: So finally, at the end of this thing, Kevin Spacey just walks in to the police department, kind of in after he gets out of a cab, and his hands are all bloody. He's covered in blood. We don't know why. Not yet. He's trying to, like, shout after Mills and Somerset, and he's like, detective, detective, and this whole thing, again, it breathes this whole apathy thing, because here you have this guy that walks in, covered in blood.
1: And nobody's looking. One,
0: nobody's looking. Two, he's yelling out, nobody's looking. And he has to, like, finally, with his a real yell, have to say, detective again. And he finally turns around. And they realize what's going on. I thought that was a pretty impactful scene. This it was. whole idea we have this literally a police department, and a guy is in there covered in blood, and nobody's paying attention. And through this whole scene, they finally get this plea deal type of thing where the killer, this John Doe, he still has no name. He's still considered John Doe. He always has been. He has no fingerprints, no identification. They have and that's because no he cuts, cuts off his fingerprints. Yeah, that's why his, his hands were bloody, right? Mm-hmm. He says that there's two more bodies, as they expect. He will show them where they are, but they have to be, he has to be escorted by Mills and Somerset explicitly and by nobody else. Yeah. And no one else goes. And that's the whole deal. And they finally agree to it, and they all start running down. It's like in the middle of the nowhere. It's just power lines and empty fields. And as it's going, the this is where the killer is kind of talking about what's going. You know, Mills is asking him questions rather dismissively, again, because he has already dismissed this guy as a lunatic. And he's kind of making these comments. He actually makes some kind of comment about, you know...
1: Like, the, do you... Do you crazy people know when you're crazy? Like, do you wake up in the morning and have your cereal and think, wow, it's amazing how fucking crazy I am. Yeah. I can't believe it.
0: And just shit like that. you yeah. keep on going, and Mil- or Somerset just like...
1: He's just looking at him like, stop. Dude, you and don't then, know
0: what you're in for. Like...
1: Yeah. And John Doe says, is... it's more comfortable for you to label me as insane. I understand. Mm. It's just easier for you that way.
0: Right. And it's also here where he makes that comment about how apathetic society is and you can't just touch him on the shoulder anymore. You has to hit him over the head with a sledgehammer and make a statement. Yeah. And as they are finally going out, long you know, everyone knows the ending of this whole fucking thing. But
1: but it's so fucking good. So we iconic. have to go through it, so let's get into <laughs> <through> it.
0: <laughs> and as they're out in the middle of fucking nowhere, this delivery truck also starts coming out there, like a FedEx knockoff oh, yeah. type of thing. And they
1: take their sweet time with this end scene. Like, it yes. feels like forever that they're driving along this desolate mm-hmm. road. There's nobody else out there. There's a helicopter trailing them of the other officers. But then you see this van coming up out of the distance. And Somerset and Mills are like, what the hell is that?
0: And the SWAT team's freaking out because they're like, what the fuck is this? Is this a trap? What do we got going on? And I think it's at this point. Well, actually, already, Kevin Spacey, John Doe, is walking Detective Mills out to where the bodies are supposed to be. Right. Yeah. So him and Somerset are kind of separated. Yeah, Somerset, Somerset goes Sets for the van. He's going for the van. He's like, you take John Doe, I'll deal with the van. As it comes up, John Doe is talking to Mills and saying how much he envies him and how much he you know, just kind of fawning over him. And Mills is kind of flipping out like, dude, yeah, shut up. Like, shut, shut the, shut the up, fuck up, up piece you know, of shit. Yeah. Going off and somerset opens the context of this box and he looks inside and just you see the look on his face like we don't know what it is you don't know what it is an audience, but you know it's not good. And
1: this is after the delivery man had said, I, I don't know what's going on. I was just asked to deliver this to yeah. a detective Mills. Right. And then like, Somerset's like, what the fuck?
0: Yeah. He's like, dude, the guy paid me $300. You so can drop it off.
1: It's so dark, but this made me laugh so much when he immediately, he sees what's in the box and then he picks up his walkie talkie and he was like, John Doe has the upper hand. He's got the upper yeah. hand. Go get Mills. Like, I got to yeah. go get like, We are fucked. <laughs> this guy is it's all fucking over. <laughs> And this is all this is happening simultaneously. Yeah, he's doing so these he
0: cuts back and forth.
1: And as Somerset discovers what is in this cardboard box, we go back to Mills and then John Doe is explaining to him again how much he envies him and then he starts talking about Tracy, his wife, and he mentions her by name. And I feel like it's really important to mention earlier in the movie she meets up with Somerset to confide in him that she just found out she's pregnant. Right. And she she doesn't know what she's gonna do yet. She hates living in this city. Yeah, she's pregnant and she hasn't told Mills yet because she doesn't know what she's going to do yet. So John Doe is saying to Mills, it's amazing how easy it is to purchase information as, as a member of the media, like from your fellow deputies. And I went into your house while you were gone and I tried to play husband and she wasn't going for it. It didn't work out. So I took a souvenir with me, her pretty head. And then Mills is like, what the fuck are you talking about? And at this very moment, Somerset is just making a beeline towards him saying, drop the gun, drop the gun. And then this is, you know, the iconic line that everybody knows. Even if you haven't seen this movie, he's, what's in the box? Oh, what's in the box? Come on. (laughs) And Somerset is just desperately, he throws his own gun down and he's like, Mills, give me the gun. And then Mills realizes that this man has decapitated his pregnant wife and put her head in this box and had it delivered to him.
0: Right. And, well, John Doe mentioned something along the lines of how she begged for her life oh and for the God. life inside of her.
1: Of the unborn baby inside of her. Yeah, and then he's and just, then just like, that's what? When
0: Mills, and then he looks at Somerset and it's like, oh, he didn't know.
1: Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> uh, so good. And the score during this part uh, yeah. is so intense. And, and, the, and
0: the whole time Somerset's oh like, dude, you're just doing him a favor like this is you're falling right into yes. this fucking trap and John Doe's like become wrath
1: yeah so this is where we find out like Mills was intended to be wrath right the victim of wrath and well no no John Doe, is, no, John Doe
0: yeah. is the victim well John Doe it's is kind envy. of it's a, yeah. almost like a murder suicide yeah. thing
1: well Mills is still a victim because even if he shoots John Doe and John Doe wins he still has to live with that yeah, and the consequences of his wrath. And Somerset is just begging him. I mean, watching this, it's... I mean, you're obviously sympathetic. Like, you would want to shoot this guy, too. But when you really think about it, if you put yourself in the mindset of someone like Somerset, you know it's just going to fuck up your life worse. And that if you shoot him, he wins. He gets to complete this act. He gets exactly what he wants. Right,
0: what are you doing for the whole time.
1: But Mills doesn't care, and he fucking shoots him in the head.
0: And it's that whole idea, again, that full circle of...
1: Crime of passion. Crime of
0: passion. And yeah. it really puts a fucking bullet point on it.
1: Oh, man. No pun intended. No pun intended. And, <laughs> and at this point, Somerset just kind of throws up his arms, and he's like, like... You can see on his face, he's like, God, I don't blame you, but God damn it, he just won. Yeah. And then the guys in the helicopter are like, he just shot him, touched down somewhere, for God's sakes, land. And I honestly would have been completely fine if it had ended there, with him shooting the guy, with him shooting John Doe. But we do get just a little bit of a an ending after that. It's not much happier, but, you know, we see the aftermath of Mills shooting John Doe. He's in the back of a police car. He's obviously distraught. He's devastated. And Somerset is talking to one of the other detectives and just saying, you know, originally he was supposed to retire and move away, but he says, you know, anything he needs, I'll be around. I'll be right here. And that's where we get... The voiceover narration of Somerset giving us the Hemingway quote from For Whom the Bell Tolls. And he says, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. And then we cut to credits. That's the end. And then we get Bowie. But we get
0: Bowie. <laughs> I have to mention just a quick couple of quick things. Yeah. On the movie. One, apparently with that whole end scene. Because it was a big part of the whole fucking movie, obviously. And one... It was kind of a mistake-ish thing that David Fincher got involved with this. Because he read the original script. Uh The producers changed it so that he did not kill. Well, one, that the wife didn't die. It was the dog's head that was in the box. Oh. Which was so stupid. Yeah. And Fincher came along and he saw their script. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. No, it's stupid. And he's like, I saw the original script. If I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. And then they kind of conceded to that. And then as they were doing it, people were still fighting it. Like, the producers were mad fighting this whole fucking thing. That
1: doesn't surprise me at and all. And
0: they also were... Got down to the point where, okay, life dies. Get it. but well, we can't have Mills. Shoot him. That's just too fucking dark. You know? And every... Like, Brad Pitt, everybody, they were like, I'll fucking walk off right now if you guys change the end.
1: Hell yeah! Everybody
0: was, like, on board I love with that. The, way that, like, the whole thing. And then the last thing I wanted... Last well, two things I want to add is a hey, the whole what's in the box thing. I guess it's like a controversy because fans still feel like they saw Gwyneth Paltrow's head in there. And I think it's just a testament to just this whole film and how there's all this is meant for you to be the one to build these things in your mind. Yeah. These murder scenes and what you see and what you think you see and what you're really just filling in because you don't see her head. No. But if you ever felt you like, see, you like, like you saw her a head, little bit of you saw blood. nothing. Yeah. Like, I think you maybe see some blood on the Just tape. on
1: the tip of the box. Yeah, yeah. That's it.
0: But I think it's just a testament because there's fans that are adamant that they saw the head. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And then the last thing, which I thought was really cool, was Kevin Spacey. It was his idea. He has no credit in the movie. Until the end. Or in the end yeah. scenes, yes. But he's not in the intro scenes. He's not credited on any of the promotional stuff that they did. So nobody had any idea that Kevin Spacey was in this movie. Oh, wow. And that was all his idea. Because he was like, if people know that there's, like, this name that's in the credits, and he's not but they don't up. see it, they're going to know, they're gonna the know who the fucking killer is. Oh, that's, that's cool. Stupid. Yeah. And the producers were super against that, too. And at one point, he was about to get on a plane, and that was his stipulation. He's like, if you want me to do it, I'm not going to be in the credits. He was like, here's the deal i'm either getting on the fucking plane and filming this thing or i'm not what's it gonna be and so finally they conceded i thought that was really cool though because that's uh i I don't know of any other movie where they've done that before no
1: i love that everyone was on board
0: yeah everyone was super on board and i think there was even an aspect where david venture had told brad pitt basically all, all three of them he's like you know what this probably will not be your most famous movie but it's one that you'll be proud of
1: yes And it is one of his best movies, if you ask me. Yeah, I I didn't
0: realize that this was apparently his second movie. Yeah,
1: the first was Alien 3. The first one was a bomb. Yeah.
0: And he was pretty much certain that if he did not nail this, he was pretty much done for in the industry. You can't have two fails like that on a big scale.
1: Yeah, Alien 3 was not good. No.
0: But I didn't realize that he basically came out, had a miss, and then just fucking kept on swinging after that. Because yeah. almost everything he's made after this has been the Finch, man. It's yeah. been fucking great. I'm
1: a huge fan. He's I am fantastic. Too.
0: Everything he does. I actually, looking into this, I saw that he has a new project that just completed, and I think it's going through the film festival circuit, that is called Mink. M-I-N-K. And it looks like it was actually written by a relative of his, or at least it's Jack Fincher. I'm assuming it's a relative of his. Okay. And it has... I've never seen Citizen Kane, so I can't be too uppity about it, but it seems like it's either, it's definitely about Citizen Kane, if not some kind of, I don't don't think it's a remake by any means, but it's definitely a Citizen Kane-centrified thing. And as such, early on, it's gotten some not-so-great feedback, but it's still pretty early on with that kind of stuff, and I'm definitely going to watch it, because it's venture.
1: Is this what he stopped Mindhunter for?
0: Probably, which is well, better trying be to fucking piss me off then. now that you mention it.
1: <laughs> it better be good then. That's all I'm going to say. Stop Mindhunter for that. But just going back to the ending, I mean, even though I've seen this movie several times and the ending still packs a hell of a punch, not just for how shocking it is, but it's so dark and so pessimistic and it just, basically everything that Somerset has been about and everything that he's been saying for the entire movie, the ending just proves him right. He was right about everything. Yeah. His philosophy, his worldview, it was all right.
0: I know. And David Fincher's good at that.
1: So moving on to the ratings portion. Like I said from the beginning, I feel like this is a, for me, this is a perfect horror movie. I love this kind of shit. I think that the script, just the way that the story was written, the way everything came full circle, how gritty it is, how pessimistic it is. I loved everything about this movie, the way that it left so much to your imagination and kind of forced you to imagine these horrors for yourself was so brilliantly done. I have zero complaints about it. I kind of joked at the beginning, like the seven in the title is the only issue I have with this movie. And that is, I hold to that 100%. I have zero issues with this movie. So we rate on a scale of zero to 12 beers. This is a 12 for me. I'm giving Lover. this a, This is a 12-er. I have no reason to give it anything less than a perfect score.
0: I'm a, I'm about on the same. I feel that the dialogue is great. The acting is amazing. The film, the cinematography is great. Yeah. And I love the whole sad detective thing. I love a detective that is against kind of an evil mastermind, if you will, but yeah. then ends up being not a mastermind, but just... It was, it was very well written. I like it when they're, the killer was not glorified, which I respect immensely.
1: 100%.
0: And to do that back in 1995 as well, it's even an extra cherry on top, and kudos to all of you. It had Nine Inch Nails in it right from the fucking get-go. Yep. It had a lot of literary references and, and kind of complemented the idea of intellect over bronze, if you will, and intellect over just raw aggression and how that doesn't get you anywhere. I think it had some very insightful messages regarding society. And as you mentioned with the kills and how brilliantly that was put together with making you the orchestrator of those gruesome scenes was very unique and very well put together. And as such, I think I have to give it a 12 out of 12 too. I cannot think of anything to critique this enough to merit a depreciation in beers.
1: Yeah, I have no reason to give this less than a 12. We haven't had a, a perfect 12 in a while. Yeah. The last one I gave a 12 was 28 Days Later. But it's been a long time since we both gave a movie a 12.
0: I feel like, did I give The Fly a 12? We
1: did. I think The Devil's Candy was the last one that we both gave a 12. Okay. And that, that was episode 7. That was movie. months ago. <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah, this is... No, I, I this love this movie. this movie. This is perfect This is great. Yeah. It
0: actually makes me want to watch this on a regular basis. Yeah. Every couple of years. Same. Just keep it in rotation. It's perfect.
1: So what kind of beer do you pair this perfect horror movie with?
0: Well, fittingly, I found this brewery. It's fittingly in so many ways. It's in New York, in nice. Ripley, New York. The brewery is called Seven Sins Brewery, and they have a beer for every sin. Yeah, so So whatever just carry one it, yeah. fits you, gluttony is obviously like a stout. That event, would be mine. goes through the list <laughs> from there. And I think that I have not tried one, but now that I've found it, I want to see if I can go through and find my sin
1: Yeah, we got to see if we could get our hands on some of these to try them. Yeah, just pair it with the sin of your choice.
0: Whichever one floats your boat.
1: I love that.
0: Well, that was my choice. It was a fucking gym. What's on the agenda this week?
1: So for our next episode, we are going to be covering a movie that I have been dying to see since it came out. And it was finally made available for streaming on Shudder. So we're going to be watching from last year. We're going to venture back into the world of Lovecraftian horror. And we are going to watch Color Out of Space.
0: Oh, I know you've been wanting to watch. That. Is it, this been... the remake?
1: Yes, this is the Nicolas Cage one. So this is a, this is actually the short story that Annihilation was derived from. Okay. So it's the same kind of concept, but I think they, they're focusing, instead of the impact that this phenomenon is having on the world at large, it focuses on a single family. Cool. So I, I have been dying to see this movie. I'm pumped for it. I can't wait. It's from SpectreVision, Elijah Wood's production company who produced Mandy, also with Nicolas Cage. So I have high hopes for this movie. I'm super excited to see it.
0: I'm ready for some cage rage.
1: Hell yes. <laughs> so if any of you have Shudder, you can check it out on there. Uh, it's You can rent it on most streaming platforms or you can do the free trial for Shudder. If you just want to check out that movie, but I'm really excited to see it.
0: Cool, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Awesome, me too. So this has been great to talk about. Fantastic pick. So you guys have been awesome, and of course, as you know, you can follow us on Instagram at Blood Fear and Beer Podcast. If you have questions for us, or movie or beer suggestions, or just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can or email what's us. What's the scent of your choice? Yeah, what kind of seven deadly sins beer would you pair this movie with you can email us at blood at gmail.com if you do get a chance if you could rate review and subscribe to our podcast on apple podcasts or itunes it really does help us out and for those of you who have done that already thank you so much i cannot tell you how much we appreciate it this has been so much fun and until next time keep it spooky
0: cheers Bye.